Again, this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. Thank you for joining us. We now return to bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. And we were talking about the life expectancy differences that were driven by wealth or lack of wealth. And we were promising to cite our sourcing. We rejoin our interview with Dr. Khan. In an article back in July 16th of 2017 by Fred Mogul, M-O-G-U-L, entitled Black Mothers Face Higher Complication Rates When Delivering Babies in New York City, he indicates past research has shown that as the gap between the rich and poor in America widens, people of different income levels can expect to live for different lengths of time. In fact, in February of 2016, researchers at the Brookings Institution analyzed life expectancies for men who are among the top 10% of earners and those who are among the bottom 10%. For men born in 1950, the bottom 10% of earners, life expectancy was 14 years shorter than for those among the rich. This is murder. I mean, it's, this is incredible. Can you just highlight in... Yeah, well, I, 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 good point, Pedro. I, there are two issues. First of all, absolutely what you're saying is true. A certain populations suffer much more than others, and, and, and particularly Native Americans have a far, far lower uh, longevity than other populations, especially white populations, but also uh, African Americans have a much lower longevity There's between Native Americans and white populations. So there are these huge inequities in how we do in terms of our health. There's, there are unsurprisingly similar inequities in terms of likelihood of being insured and in terms of the likelihood of postponing or skipping care uh, because of financial barriers. Uh, the, the groups that are most likely to do that are, of course, the poor and people of color. So we set up and exacerbate these differences. I, I want to make, make one other point, Pedro, and then I'll, I'll pass it back to you. And that is even white populations, even economically well-off populations suffer in our system. Those populations do worse than the populations of the other countries. So our system is hurting everyone. I just wanted to piggyback on what you're saying, because it appears to me that the idea that when you're living on the edge economically, there's so much more stress in life. You're trying to budget your money. Therefore, if you start to fall ill, you wait tragically way too long for so many people before you go to a doctor, right? Because it's a, it, it means money out of pocket. Uh, we're not in, insured yet. Your earlier point that you made in one of your pieces is that we're not like trying to invent something that's never been invented. This is already proven systems throughout the developed world. I, I, I assume you're referring to these OECD nations that we've been, that we've been compared to. Right. Let me ask you this. I wanted to turn, and you can come back to whatever you think is important that you wanted to reiterate and to further educate the American public on, because, you know, the propaganda that I study the most on is on foreign policy. And I know from that experience how misled we are. And the problem with our healthcare system is also convoluted because of through advertising and through propaganda, through these things that these huge corporations market these types of mixed messaging and stuff to confuse us of where the real problem is. But the New York Times just recently did an article that really 
is basically confirming everything that you've been talking about. It was called The Cash Monster Was Insatiable, How Insurers Exploited Medicare for Billions by Reed Abelson and Margaret Sanger Katz, published in the New York Times on October the 8th, 2022. And the government, I think just to indicate the nature of this fraud, pays Medicare Advantage a certain amount for each person who enrolls with higher rates for sicker patients. And apparently, as a result, these companies have developed in kind of an environment of plausible deniability, elaborate systems to make their patients appear as sick as possible without providing additional treatment, according to these lawsuits. So can you speak a little bit to the, to the integrity of the lawsuits? Because these are lawsuits, they're not proven deals. But again, going back to this article, it indicated that eight of the 10 biggest Medicare Advantage insurers representing more than two-thirds of the market have submitted these inflated bills, according to federal audits. And I think what you're saying, if I'm not mistaken, is these federal audits are made by groups that are not necessarily following through like they should. It seems like if we have lawsuits now, it's probably an indication that we should have been down this road a long, long time ago. Can you indicate the prospects of these lawsuits and then also the larger issue of just getting rid of this system and turning it into a a Medicare for all type deal? Is that even a possibility politically in your eyes? You've been working in this area for a long time. Hey, Joe, you, you are turning into a tough host. You're asking me two very big questions. Let me see if I can peel off one at a time. So in terms of these lawsuits, I think they are generally quite legitimate. They don't get to the point of being publicly announced lawsuits until they're rock solid. So I'm sure that there's this fraud going on. And I believe that there are going to be payments in the millions or perhaps even tens of millions of dollars to settle these lawsuits. There's no doubt about it. But but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And, and, you know, it's just a cost of doing business for insurance companies. So they pay a a $6 million fine. Who cares? I mean, it's nothing for them. These are companies with annual profits in the billions. What do they care about a a $6 million or even $60 million settlement? It's nothing, nothing to them. By the way, most of the business for private insurance companies now comes from the federal government in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. So it used to be the private insurance companies made most of their money through employment-based insurance and these people going to brokers, but now they make most of their money and all of their increases in revenue in recent years come from feeding at the public trough. So anyway, you have these lawsuits, they're legitimate, most are going to win or be settled, and generally the companies will not admit to any wrongdoing. They'll just say, we don't admit we did anything wrong, but you know, here's $6 million dollars. Done. Cost of doing business. The real problem is in the much, much larger gaming of the system that either is legal or isn't caught out as illegal. And that's where you get into the tens of billions of dollars a year in extra payments. It is a legalized extortion, legalized fraud in a sense, because the whole system is structurally fraudulent. It's a mechanism for these companies to pull money out of the government, which means taking it from taxpayers and put it into the pockets of shareholders. So I don't get that excited about the, the fraud per se, except as a, as a signal for what's going on. Mm-hmm. So the question is, can we fix our system? And my argument is, no, we've tried to do that 
for many, many years. I mean, I was a huge fan of President Barack Obama. I took my kids to Washington for that first inauguration. They were pretty young and it was really, really cold that day on the mall. But I, I just saw the wonderful message that our country was receiving, uh, that this thoughtful, serious uh, man who happened to be Black was elected president. Yet his approach to healthcare reform accepted this notion that you can use the current system and tweak it to make it better. We have really no evidence for that. We continue to have many millions of, of uninsured. The kinds of insurance people have now is much more likely to have super high deductibles and so that they're underinsured, two to, two to $5,000 in payments before the insurance actually even kicks in. So we have a terribly dysfunctional system. And the question is, can we fix it? Again, no evidence over many decades of efforts that any of the things we've done to remedy these problems have, have really solved the problems. In many ways, we're worse off. So can we learn from the dozens of other countries in the OECD? Can we do a single payer system that is a publicly financed universal healthcare system where everyone has the same insurance? I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a political prognosticator or even a tactician. All I can say is that the recognition of the severity of our problems is growing. The number of co-sponsors for single payer, often known as improved Medicare, is growing. So the bills by Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders have more co-sponsors than they had ever in the past. And there's an increasing recognition that really we just can't fix the system. We need to change it radically in a way that aligns with what these other OECD countries do. And I'm, I'm sure when we spoke previously, I, I mentioned what I think is the link between all of this and our struggling democracy. And I just want to emphasize again today that reforming healthcare is also about saving democracy. If people of all political stripes are relieved of the worries of whether their health insurance will be there when they need it, there's going to be a lot more community spirit and people on the right who tend to be skeptical of the role of government will begin to understand just how amazing government can be. All of these other OECD countries, regardless of their current uh, political party in power, including conservative parties, all of them have universal health coverage. It is considered a sacrosanct right and a role of government to make sure everyone's covered. And once again, I'll just say it once again, they save money in the process. So why aren't we doing that? Well, you know the reason as well as I do. Very good. Well, listen, let me just share a couple of things that, again, that are very consistent with your analysis, I think. I remember the initiation of this great opioid overdose epidemic that we had in this country back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. It was Purdue Frederick that actually got a class action suit by, I think, five or six different attorney generals throughout the country. And Purdue Frederick was found guilty of illegal sales and marketing practices, concealing information from patients and many healthcare providers regarding the potency and abuse potential oxycotton for corporate profit, said Daniel R. Livingston, Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And it wasn't a $20 million uh, settlement. It was a $634.5 million settlement. 
The Purdue Frederick Incorporated pleaded guilty to felony misbranding Oxycontin with the intent to defraud and mislead. And the top three executives, President and Chief Operating Officer Michael Friedman, Executive Vice President and Chief Legal Officer Howard Udell, and former Executive Vice President of Worldwide Medical Affairs Paul D. Goldenheim, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge of misbranding Oxycontin, and all pleas were entered into the United States District Court in Abingdon, Virginia. The executive paid $34.5 million out of pocket. The point of that whole process was they were making billions of dollars each year, literally over a billion dollars every year. And so when you, the cost of business that you mentioned, the cost of doing business is not just some rhetorical statement. It's exactly a strategic, fraudulent economic plan. Like, well, we'll have to pay this, but we'll make this. And at the end of the day, guess what? We end up making billions. Now these guys, they actually got charged criminally, but it was misdemeanors, Dr. Khan. They were misdemeanor misbranding. They did like a probation. They paid $634.5 million, but hundreds died and nobody went to jail. And then recently, guess what? Once again, in 2020, Purdue Pharma pled guilty again in court, this time to three felonies, thus becoming a recidivist offender. The same company that pleaded guilty to misbranding and fraud charges related to its marketing of Oxycontin committed some 20 years ago, but settled in 2007, that directly led to the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands. Fast forward just a decade or so later, this time the family agreed to pay at least $5.5 billion in cash, the Sackler family that's connected to Purdue Frederick, as part of a number of lawsuits that included other pharmaceutical companies, which will be used for abating a crisis that has led to nearly 500,000 U.S. opioid overdose deaths over the past two decades. The Sackler family owners said in a statement that they, quote, sincerely regret that Oxycontin unexpectedly became part of an opioid crisis, end quote. Purdue said earlier this year in March of 2022, according to Reuters, that the new settlement would provide additional funding for opioid abatement programs, overdose rescue medicines, and victims, while putting the company on track to resolve its bankruptcy case on an expedited schedule, end quote. The family members said they acted lawfully, but a settlement was by far the best way to help resolve a serious and complex public health crisis, end quote. But there's nothing complex about this crisis. This is just what you said, Dr. Khan, earlier in the show, that this is just a black and white cost of doing business issue without admitting guilt, instead just paying inherently insufficient fines, lawsuit problems are resolved. They pay millions, they make billions, mission accomplished, despite the cost of hundreds of thousands of deaths. This is what a market-based profit over people incentivized healthcare system promotes. Just another form of legalized fraud. I guess my point is this, and I wanted you to comment on this, but if it's inherently insufficient fines, like you've said, that's why you say the system can't be fixed. That's what fraudulent or legalized fraud looks like. Right. So at the end of the day, when you look at these corporations, what Purdue Frederick did is 
if you get convicted of a felony, which they did. First, back in 2007. You're not allowed to do business with the government. And Medicare is like you're saying, a huge, huge consumer or payer. And so what they did is they created a shell corporate company that took the felony, okay? But the other part of their company, which was not under that shell, continued to do business with Medicare. So this is that legalized fraud and, and ways to get around any type of accountability. As you know, thousands of people have died from this misbranding started back then. They continue to die now and nobody goes to jail. And that is essentially why this continues to happen, I would suspect. Can you speak on that? Absolutely. If, if you're a, a low-level drug dealer and you sell uh, some illicit opioids to someone, you can go to jail for a long time. But if you are at the top of a corporate structure and you are fostering a, a, a culture of opioid dependency and making billions in the process, or for that matter, if you are doing any number of things at, at a high corporate level that takes money from millions of people and hurts their health, you'll never go to jail. It's one of the great crimes of our society is that the people who do the most harm do it from the corporate boardrooms, and they are never personally held accountable. No one was held personally accountable for the 2008 mortgage crisis and uh, economic uh, problems that resulted from that, even though there was ample evidence that it was a whole system to essentially manipulate the mortgages and, and misrepresent them. So it is a deeply unfair system. And well, maybe that's a topic for some another show and someone who knows how to fix our system. Yeah. So before we let you go, I just wanted to share one other thought and then also wanted to get contact information for your health justice monitor stuff so our listeners can access up-to-date, uh, well-informed information. But I really enjoy our visits because you really provoke great thoughts and reflections on this topic. And as I was listening to you, we talked about how life expectancy has declined in our country. It's an unbelievable outcome of certainly a system that's broken. But when you listen to the propaganda, and I call it propaganda because we're just dominated by information that confuses rather than informs us. They will blame the life expectancy downturn on the opioid crisis. Oh, there's so many more people dying from opioid crisis. But the opioid crisis we just indicated is connected to these huge corporate irresponsible behaviors, inextricably connected. They are the main force behind all of that and the profiteering that is connected to that, right? Let me connect some other dots. Yeah. The opioid crisis is related to despair. Despair is related to the economic problems and worries that people have, including worries about health insurance. So it's all linked up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Listen, in the last minute or two that we have with you, can you share, if people want to get more information about this healthcare system, about the prognosis for, as you've indicated, recognizing the severity of our health crisis in our health system that needs changing. You've got this health monitor. Yeah, let me talk about that. So we have a, a blog about uh, three times a week, typically. It's uh, posted at the website healthjusticemonitor.org. And people can sign up for free emails, again, typically three times per week. I'm 
the editor, always open to leads on what to write about. And we have other bloggers as well. We typically have a quick summary and an excerpt and a link for the news article or a research article, and then a, a commentary and interpretation. And it's also searchable. So if people want to say, hey, has anyone at Health Justice Monitor written about ACO reach or about Medicare Advantage or about medical debt? That's easy to find in the search bar. So it's a real resource for people who want to, to see what's been reported and how we interpreted that. So I, I do hope people will check out healthjusticemonitor.org. Very good. And then as a closing question of consideration, you may not be able to answer this specifically, but when you mentioned, or when I mentioned the work that you were associated with that determined that there's some 338,000 U.S. lives that were lost from COVID unnecessarily in this country due to a broken healthcare system and political system, I might add. When we think about those life expectancy numbers going down, it doesn't seem all that much when you say, oh, it's gone down one or two years over the last few years. But when you try to conceptualize that as what that means to lost lives and years off of lives compared to the potentiality of us having a healthcare system like these other OECD nations, what are we talking about in your mind? Uh, Is there any way you can quantify that a little bit more on the way out? Well, there's research on the association between lack of insurance and increased mortality. There was an excellent review a few years ago of all of those studies, which estimated that the number of added deaths due to lack of insurance, uninsurance, was uh, on the order of 50,000 per year or more. That does not even begin to capture the deaths that are being caused by underinsurance, those huge deductibles, and people don't go to the doctor. A number of individual studies have looked at certain pieces of that. It's a little bit hard to sort out, but I would say at least double, if not triple that number. So we're talking about excess deaths of 100,000 to 150,000 per year due to insurance problems. And if you compare the U.S. to other countries, that's the same kind of number you come up with. So that's the scale that we're talking about year in and year out. Very good. Well, listen, I want to remind our listeners, we've had the great honor and privilege of sharing time with Dr. James G. Kahn. He's the Emeritus Professor of Health Policy at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also a leading researcher in the cost and effectiveness of health intervention programs and in the U.S. healthcare financing reform field. He's an editor and primary blogger for health justice monitor. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for your time. Please continue to forward your most current analyses and we will follow your work and get you back on down the road. Pedro, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you, friend. See you next week. Don't be late.